Um, welcome to the Big Ten USA, and especially to all the new people who have joined us here tonight. At Big Ten USA, we put democracy above partisanship. We're building a women-led voter coalition to protect the guardrails of democracy, ensure government accountability and transparency, and increase civic participation. I'm Evangeline Morphus, and I'm a member of the Big Ten Planning Committee. We felt a real urgency to do tonight's spotlight event in response to the alarming rise of book bans across the country. And I'm thrilled to welcome Suzanne Nossel and Richard Dresser to have a conversation with us here at the Big Ten. Suzanne Nossel is the Chief Executive Officer of Pan America, the leading human rights and free expression organization in the country and abroad. She's the author of Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. She serves on the Meta Oversight Board, I guess formerly Facebook, right? Uh, her prior career spanned government service and leadership roles in the corporate and nonprofit sectors and was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Obama administration. Suzanne is a featured columnist on Foreign Policy Magazine and a frequent contributor to the New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times, and dozens of other outlets. Richard Dresser is a writer who has worked extensively in television, theater, and film. His plays have been widely produced in New York, across the country, and in Europe. They include Rounding Third and Below the Belt, both of which he adapted for films. And his novel, It Happened Here, was released before the 2020 election and correctly predicted everything that has happened, as he says, up until Tuesday. <laughs> and I read the book. It is chilling and fabulous. He recently co-produced the documentary, The Barrigans. Richard teaches screenwriting at Columbia Film School and is president and founding member of the Writers Guild Initiative, which conducts writing workshops all around the country with the mission of giving a voice to populations not being heard. Um, please check our live transcript. And if you have questions, put those in the chat. Uh, but I'd like to start by asking Richard and Suzanne, what is different about this moment? America has a long history of censorship. Usually it sort of focuses on sexually explicit scenes or language. Uh, very often it's also attached to visuals, to film, TV, uh, photography. But this moment feels different. Um, banning books means cutting off access to the ideas that are in the books. And the basis of the bans are the viewpoints or experiences of the author or the characters in the books. So how is this moment different? I can start, uh, uh, if you'd like, Evangeline. First of all, thank you so much for having me here. You know, I think what we're dealing with is the confluence of, of three strands, two sort of underlying phenomena that are at play in our communities, and then a an opportunistic political force. Yeah. The underlying phenomena, the first is the experience of the pandemic and the disruptions to pandemic schooling and the the what families and children underwent during that 18-month period when Many schools were closed, education was disrupted, friction erupted between parents and school systems, school leaders, teachers. That proved in many parts of the country to be a, a combustible mix and created a real sense of grievance and frustration and anger for parents against schools. The second piece is I think a a fear that some parents have about how society is changing and what ideas their kids are being introduced to and a sense that things are moving quickly, social change is accelerating, that their kids are being uh, schooled in ideas and identities that they are not comfortable with, that feel unfamiliar, that they don't have control over. So much of kids media consumption happens online, outside of parents' view, and there's a sense of loss of control on the part of parents and families. 
And what has happened over the last couple of years is a, a determined movement has sprung up to capitalize on those concerns and fears and wage ideological warfare in school systems and libraries across the country with books as a weapon. And we see a movement that is determined to suppress not just books, but ideas, histories, identities, narratives. And it is part of you know what I see as this epic struggle on a foot in our country about our transition toward becoming a more pluralistic society, a more diverse society, a society with no single dominant ethnic or cultural group as a matter of population, and the sense among some segments that that society is going to deny them and deprive them of entitlements that they are accustomed to, uh, that they don't feel they can live without, that their well-being and security and uh, sense of purpose and groundedness is at stake. And they are being mobilized to fight against books as a way of acting out that sense of grievance. And it's an organized movement. That's one thing that is different than in the past. This is not a, a parent picking up their kid's backpack and opening up a book and saying, hmm, you know, I'm not sure this is age appropriate. That's not what this is about. It's an organized movement where lists of books are being passed from school board to school board and activist to activist to empower people to lodge objections and really put their own concerns and sensitivities above those of other parents. So it's put, it's it's uh, often captioned as styled as parents' rights, but it's really in, in many communities, we've filed a lawsuit in Escambia County, Florida, where you have a single teacher who has lodged challenges that have led to more than 120 books being removed from the shelves in a county that serves more than 20,000 students. So that's a single teacher dictating what 20,000 students can. Uh, I, I do want to talk about how book bans uh, hurt writers. In, in the last year, uh, close to 1,500 authors, illustrators, and translators um, have had uh, their work banned. And, and I think the, the immediate part of this is um, a loss of income and possibly a hit to their careers, and that's devastating. But I think it goes deeper. And um, one thing that Pan America and the Writers Guild Initiative and Moms for Liberty have in common is we all agree on the power of books. And I, that's, uh, you know, I think that it's important as organized a movement as it is, I think it's important to remember that book bans come from weakness and fear at the heart. I, I, I totally agree with what Suzanne said. And Historically, um, if you look at what's what's been banned during the colonial era, it was, it was anything heretical, anything, you know, pre-Civil War, it was abolitionist. And, you know, yes, it did get, get into uh, obscenity later on in, in the 50s. It was the McCarthy era. It was communism during civil rights. It was, uh, you know, it was it was roots. It was, you know, it was anything uh, that was uh, challenging. Uh, the racial situation, the feminine feminist movement, the same thing. It was like it was like the feminine mystique, and so in a way we've been here before, but I think it is a profoundly different time because the agenda is um, is is much. It's I think it's much more focused, and I think it goes right at the heart of um, democracy and. I really want to talk just a minute about uh, what that means to writers. You know, the way I look at it, writers, playwrights, we're in conversation through our work with each other and with audiences and with readers. And we're constantly stirring things up because you know what, that's our job. We all come into this with our own point of view on the world. And what book bands say is that certain ideas and voices are officially not allowed to be heard. And even though officially might mean one book is challenged by one parent and removed, and while that book is challenged, it's taken off the shelves, no one can read it. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's true what Evangeline says about the, the power of a very limited group of people uh, to ban books, but the effect is huge because the book is, the book is gone. 
And this creates a chilling effect on writers. And I think perhaps the most devastating part of it is it can lead to self-censorship. And this is, not, this is not something that writers set out to do. But I think in some cases with some writers, you steer away from ideas that are too provocative or likely to be challenged. And because the truth is, bottom line, we all want to get our work out there and we may consciously or unconsciously conform to rules that we don't agree with. And that is truly insidious. And what it means is our national conversation, our ongoing cultural conversation is limited. And in a democracy, we depend on the free exchange of ideas. And that's where it gets messy. And it's messier now than it's ever been. It's, you know, it's really hard to think of anything in American life now that is not partisan, whether it's health or sports or music. Um, and we see how truly messy it is in the hallowed halls of Congress where Republicans are engaged in an existential food fight uh, with <laughs> the country at stake. And Winston Churchill said, um, although he apparently never met Matt Gates, he said, Democracy is the worst form of government except for all others. And democracy depends on the free exchange of ideas. The book banners are afraid of the free exchange of ideas because it exposes how utterly bankrupt their ideas actually are. They're afraid of everyone voting. They're afraid of every voice being heard. They're afraid of democracy. And I just wanna, just wanna sort of point out some of the terms that they use in dealing with books about gender. And as we know, books about gender are among the most banned books. Yeah. And here's some of the terms, pornographic, harmful, inappropriate. Now, if you think about it, if a book with a trans theme is banned for being appropriate, what they're saying is the author who created this work is inappropriate. And the trans kid who wanted to read this book is inappropriate. And it's basically demonizing the most vulnerable people in our society. And the, the message is clear. Your voice should not be heard. So creatively, we're in a situation where these book bands, they come out of weakness, but they affect us all. Nothing is scarier to book banners than intellectual freedom and an educated population. I think it, we, somebody mentioned how it, it, it gets into the textbooks. Self-censorship is very real and, and extremely destructive to our society. And, you know, uh, as Suzanne said, it isn't apparent, you know, grabbing a book out of a book bag. It's much more organized than that. It's about crippling the free and open exchange of ideas and basically shutting down our democracy. I think that's Richard, I think you're getting at, at one of the really key differences, and that is it's not sections of books that are being banned. It's not expurgating something. Um, last week in New York, there was a bomb threat at a Brooklyn public library for story hour, children's story hour. So the attack is not on the book. The attack is on the readers, on the librarians, as you say, on the creators of the, of the book. And and usually it's aimed at who these voices are, what they represent. Amanda Gorman's book was banned. And Suzanne, I think people are always shocked by how widespread this is. And I know that Penn has done this incredible years-long study of books that are banned and how many. Um, it's over 3,000. It exists in 41 states, so let's not think it's just limited to Texas and, and Florida, but maybe you can talk a little bit about how widespread this is. Yeah, sure. I mean, we just issued our most recent report uh, counting uh, 3,362 bans. Uh, Florida is the number one book banning state. We actually announced today, this morning, that we're going to be opening a PEN America office in Florida, supported by a, an extraordinary group of best-selling authors who I really admire. They've stepped up so courageously to 
support our efforts, Michael Connolly, David Baldacci, James Patterson, uh, and others. It's an exceptional list. You know, a couple of things I'll sort of add to the picture in terms of understanding what this movement is all about, because uh, it's not just book bans. It is also bans on curriculum. In Florida, they have two laws. They don't say gay law and the Stop Woke Act, both of which constrict what can be taught and spoken about in the classroom. And these laws set parameters where if you talk about LGBTQ identity uh, in an elementary school as a teacher, you could be subject to discipline. If you talk about what somebody construes as a divisive concept uh, or talk about racial issues, racial justice in a way that a politician disagrees with, you could be vulnerable. And these laws are deliberately intended to cast a chilling effect. They're vague. They don't specify precisely where the line is drawn. That's the nature of censorship. Uh, willfully, it, it creates that a sense of uncertainty about what may trigger the tripwire, uh, what might get you into trouble, and you're incentivized as a teacher or a librarian to err on the side of caution in terms of what books go on the shelf. Or what on the, the other library. side of it, I, I just want to interject with a poll from the, uh, the Washington Post reported this again. 83% of Americans say books should never be banned for criticizing U.S. history. 85% oppose banning them for airing ideas you disagree with, and 87% oppose banning them for discussing race or depicting slavery. So the situation that you're describing is not supported by over 80% of the population. So where do we get into this role of essentially the tyranny of a very small minority. And, and Rick, you sort of mentioned the idea of authoritarianism. Usually, this comes from a government, right, banning. In this case, it's coming from individuals within a smaller community. This, I, I see them as this roving band of 11 nut jobs. Um, but what is actually happening in these school districts and how does something get banned in that way? Well, well, I think it would be a lot easier if it were 11, 11 misguided people wandering the streets who are upset. But I think, in fact, it is extremely well organized. I mean, Moms for Liberty is a fake grassroots group, but an authentic hate group. And um, they're, they're tremendously organized. The, uh, that was an amazing report that PEN America put out last week yeah. about the number of states. It's something like 33 states that banned books had uh, Moms for Liberty or one of the a similar organization operating in, in the state. And so they are a hardcore political organization. At their last convention, uh, Trump, DeSantis, and uh, Nikki Haley spoke there and but they are they are um you know they sh they've shown up at, at school board meetings with the proud boys in new hampshire they put a 500 hundred dollar bounty um if anyone could turn in a teacher who spoke about race or gender in school so they're 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 extremely well organized and the reason they're a fake grassroots group is they suddenly came into being with enormous funding from the right so I, it, it feels as if um, they have been effective in a certain way, while the numbers of people who oppose them, it, it's a much greater number. But uh, if you look at it, uh, issues like women's rights, you know, all the issues right down the line, then uh, the vast majority of Americans don't agree with what the right wing is doing. And, um, you know, you said it usually comes from an authoritarian government. and and I think. Uh, this is coming from an authoritarian government in waiting. And I think it's why, as ridiculous as a lot of this stuff is, um, it's, it's, we have to be absolutely serious about what their agenda is. Because, I, you know, I think that a lot of, a, a big part of their agenda is an outright assault on public education. 
and that's been in the works for a long time. I mean, Reagan wanted to get rid of the Department of Education in 1980, and Mike Pence, um, you know, said the same thing in that disturbing police lineup of Republicans on the debate stage the other night. And it's they and and going at going after public education is an important part of their agenda because nothing is scary that scarier than an educated populace. Um, the 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 you know the the chilling effect we talked about we mentioned teachers and librarians but I think it's also um, publishers um, and of course in in uh, in the great state of Florida this this whole edict about what can be taught resulted in a history book that included the story of Rosa Parks but removed that controversial business about race. So it basically emerged as a story about being so, people being sort of impolite on public transportation. Um, and uh, also in Florida, of course, uh, it had to be Florida. There was a, a textbook said that uh, slavery taught important skills as if slavery was some kind of demented trade school to give black people a leg up in the job market. You know, it's, it's so crazy and distorted, but this is what students are learning and this is what teachers are teaching and and uh, that's this is, this is a chilling outline of the landscape and what we're doing however i know that both of you are active in doing something about it and and i would love for suzanne to talk just a little bit about what uh what you all are doing legally because you are joining in lawsuits to to take care of this. And and Rick, I'm then going to uh, turn over to you uh, a chance to talk about the Writers Guild Initiative and, and what is happening literally even as we speak. But Suzanne, talk just for a little bit about what Ken is doing, because you really have always been at the forefront of this. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Look, one of the most important things we have done is documented blown the whistle and sounded the alarm. We're responsible for essentially the definition of book bans that has come into par common parlance that the media uses. It's disputed because the right wing will say if a book is eventually put back on the shelf, even if it's after a year, it was never banned. You know, Donald Trump was banned from Twitter and Facebook. He eventually was allowed back on the platforms, but that doesn't mean he wasn't banned. It can be an entire years worth of students in a sixth grade classroom that are denied access to a book that comes under review. So our definition of book bans, we believe has offered a, a holistic, consistent picture of book denials and deprivations. And I think it's really- You're shaping the language of the line of argument. And that's yes, really important. In more yeah. than one way. Uh, and then we're working with communities across the country, preparing people to advocate in school board meetings, helping them organize the kind of silent majority that is against book banning, uh, doing work in the media uh, and in legislatures, filing lawsuits. The law on book banning of, uh, is unfortunately quite unsettled. There's only one Supreme Court precedent. And so we've had to be very careful about where we file suit and what kind of case we can make because local school districts do have a lot of control and leeway over the curriculum. And so those challenges have to be mounted very carefully, but we're involved in a number of them. And we're involved in coalition with all kinds of groups at the national, the local level, the library association, uh, censorship organizations, Florida Freedom to Read and its counterparts across the country to get the most credited voices at the to the forefront of this debate, which are people from the local community who could speak to local values and mores and why book banning runs counter to them. Yeah. I know you've joined in the in the uh, legal battle with uh, and Tango Makes Three, a book about two male penguins who have happened it based on a true story in Central Park Zoo. Two male penguins raised a uh, penguin pup or whatever it was called when the mother threw it out of the nest and uh, that apparently is offensive to people but uh, Rick, I, just, as... I just want to I just want to add on to that about uh, and tango makes three it's for ages two to five written by the acclaimed playwright Peter Parnell and his husband Justin Richardson uh, when it was banned in Florida uh, a, a member of the school board David Williams I think he deserves a shout out 
uh, he said, the fascination is still on those two male penguins. So I'll be voting to remove the book from our library. And the fascination is still on those two male penguins. I think sometimes the book banners reveal more about themselves than they are aware. <laughs> Rick, why don't you tell us about what is happening even as we are on this call that the Writers Guild Initiative has put into place? And I'm gonna do that, but I'm just gonna give a very quick background because there are a lot of people that don't know what the Writers Guild Initiative is. We're a small nonprofit under the umbrella of the Writers Guild East. We started it 15 years ago, and we do writing workshops all over the country with marginalized groups. We started 2007, 2008 with veterans, wounded soldiers. We now work with um, uh, exonerated death row prisoners, uh, LGBT asylum seekers, DACA recipients, nurses on the front line of COVID, uh, survivors of human trafficking in New York, incarcerated men at the Pendleton Prison in Indiana. The, the list goes on. And our mission is to give a voice to populations not being heard. Fighting against book bans is clearly not our mission, but our board decided that this issue is so important. It doesn't just affect writers, it affects all of us. And so, uh, so we decided we, ha we had to take action. And honestly, we are incredibly honored to be working with, uh, with Pan America, who's been leading the way. So here's what we're doing this week. Uh, Writers Guild Initiative, Pan America, and Unite Against Book Banning, collaborating on a day of action on October 7th, this Saturday, to raise awareness. We've been working with actors, writers, comedians, artists of all stripes, and we have an Instagram campaign where they're going to share banned books that change their lives. So you're going to see, you get on Instagram, you're going to see uh, videos from Neil Gaiman, Kevin Bacon, Tara Sedgwick, Andrea Martin, John Doman, Wendy Malick, many, many more. We've already we already have a, a video from Edie Falco on the United Against Book Bands Instagram account. After only about 30 hours, and we're still days away from the day of action, uh, we have we have over a million views. We have nine, 91,000 likes, 160 responses. That's people recording their their own pieces, and it's worth checking out because the comments are just stunning. People are totally engaged. Uh, this issue, it's so clear that it's on everybody's mind. So we're already on fire with this now. Um, we are going to now give you a little tasting menu of what you'll be seeing on Instagram. So if the technology works, and I think that there's at least a 58% chance that, that, that it will work flawlessly, um, I'm going to, we give you videos from Edie Falco. Mandy Patinkin and Catherine Grody, and the remarkably well-adjusted Lewis Black. Hi, I'm Edie Falco. I remember the first time I read To Kill a Mockingbird. I think I was 11 or 12 in middle school. I remember being touched by many things in that book, but there was one line in particular that, that really struck me. You never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. And this has turned out to be what I do for a living. Um, I don't think I would have read that book had it been banned in my school district, as it was in so many other areas in the United States. In, the fact, in fact, the past school year, PEN America has uh, found more than 3,000 cases of banned books just here in the United States. We have to protect the right of children to read no matter where they live or what school district they go to. You can help by sharing a story of a book that you read that's banned. Uh, or you can click on the link in the bio and see how else you might be able to help. Okay, what's, what do you want to talk about? I want to talk about October 7th, which is a day, a national day, supporting school, teenage kids, humans, grown-ups, that are fighting the banning of books. What do you guys think of the banning of books? I, you... think, I think of Nazi Germany. Yeah. Book banning. Book I've been, banning I, book I stood burning. there where they burned all the books in, in, in Berlin. Yeah. Don't ban books. Don't freedom ban of speech, books. freedom of reading, freedom of intelligence, 
Freedom of information. Freedom of learning. Freedom of academia. Don't be afraid of ideas. Your children need all kinds of ideas, not just one idea. And it's basic to democracy to be able to have freedom of information. So support your libraries. Support schools that refuse to ban books. Support your bookstores. And, and what should someone do if there's a book they don't like? Give nope. it to a bookstore to resell. No, or, if they don't like, don't read it. Don't read, don't don't read, read it. Your book. That's right. Don't, don't read, read your it. book. But understand that this is the seed of fascism. It starts with not letting people have freedom of ideas and freedom. Here, these these are some of my favorite things in the world. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to read them all it's over again. No, I don't get that kind of thing. I love books. I love ideas. I love ideas I don't agree with. Me. But I get information now. <laughs> I love it. Hi, Lewis Black here. And I just wanted to take a moment of your time to let you know that this is Banned Books Week. Uh, that doesn't mean that we're going to ban books. It means that folks are actually trying to ban books, which is what? Psychotic. Why is it psychotic? Because we saw, saw the Germans try it, and it didn't work out, did it? No, it didn't. Um, I read a really important book when I was young. It was called Slaughterhouse-Five. It is considered one of the hundred greatest books written by an American during the last century, written by Kurt Vonnegut. It's an absolutely incredible anti-war book and it had a huge effect on me as a child and one of the reasons that they want to ban it now is because apparently there is sex in it oh no and let me just say this i read that book as a child and at not at any point in time did i get a boner and that's the reason i read so whatever you do don't ban a book okay forget it there's some really great questions in the chat, and I want to get to uh, the first one. Uh, and here's the question. If progressive parents have the right to lobby school boards for DEI and teaching the 1619 Project, do conservative parents have the right to lobby against DEI and teaching that marriage is a sacred bond between one man and one woman? And I think this gets to the Moibus strip of, you know, where did this start and and what constitutes the need for for if not banning restricting etc suzanne you just wrote up an amazing piece about this sure uh look parents do have rights parents have and should have a say in what how their kids education is shaped you know, we all, all of us who've been parents have had moments where something happened at school that we weren't entirely happy with and we wanted to raise it. That's why we have parent-teacher conferences. That's why we have parent-teacher associations. You know, we have channels. We can talk to the teacher, talk to the principal. That's all normal. And there's going to be a give and take and people are going to have different views. And, and the messaging on sensitive issues is going to vary depending on where in the country you are, it, whether you're in a city or in a rural community, it's gonna be different here in New York City than it is uh, in a place like West Virginia or Oklahoma. We have to accept that. Those normal channels, that give and take, sometimes it can get tense, but it doesn't mean you go to the legislature and seek a law banning the teaching of certain concepts. It doesn't mean you go to the school board and insist that a book that may not be right for your child needs to be denied to everyone. And so it's this escalation of tactics and this resort to out and out censorship to navigate what can sometimes be genuinely difficult issues. I mean, there are debates about age appropriateness. Some of the books that we deal with that are uh, heavily banned are sexually explicit. You know, they're not right for every age group. The authors acknowledge that they intended those books with a certain readership in mind. And so we have to be able to kind of come to grips with that. We can't, I don't think, be absolutist. I think we have to let people have their say. Denying them their say only intensifies their drive to lash out and uh, seek to ban and suppress. Uh, I, th I think the question, though, also asks another question, which is when we began and there were school boards that that banned Huckleberry Finn because of slavery and, and the use of the N-word, et cetera. 
uh, without really acknowledging that it's one of the most powerful anti-slavery books ever written. How do we how do we justify appropriateness, and how do we really understand what it means to accept whether it's language, ideas, concepts, histories that are difficult, um, and begin. You know, I mean, a couple of thoughts. I, mean, I think we have to double down behind the freedom to read, recognizing that all kinds of books are going to offend different people for different reasons, and they're going to find them objectionable. It could be people on the right and the left. We've, in, in, Alongside our work on book bans, we put out a report last month called Book Lash. That's about the freedom to read and the language of harm and how online mobs are uh, prompting publishing houses and authors to withhold certain books because they come under fire, oftentimes for people who haven't even read the book, but just object to the content uh, or object to the identity of the author and the subject that they're writing about. So there's been a kind of turning away from the freedom to read uh, on both sides of the spectrum, and we need to rally around that agenda and restore it. You know, and, you know. with that said, I, I think there are going to be ongoing debates about appropriateness, about how to deal with certain ideas, about where the Overton window lies, what should be considered out of bounds. I don't think we'll ever have a hard and fast set of rules, but we have to rely on civic discourse, on dialogue, on problem solving within communities to get past that. We can't resort to out-and-out out warfare, which is what is happening in many of these communities now. And, and Rick, you talked uh, at the very beginning, too, about the writer's uh, expression and the idea that you have to be free to express your truth, your understanding of the world, your experiences. And it... it what I noticed in, in Edie's, which always moves me very much when I hear this, her, her identification with reading and becoming empathetic, understanding what it is to be another person, to think like another person. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and the importance yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, this is this is what I truly believe about writing is that it is ultimately an act of empathy. It's an act of putting yourself in somebody else's shoes, and it's a way of attempting to understand the world. And um, I really object that uh, you know there is there is uh, a lot of pressure in terms of what you're allowed to write about. And I believe, you know, anyone should be able to write about anything as, as long as they do the work, as long as they're, they're writing honestly about another person's experience. But I think this is a really great question and a, and a, and a great thing to, to take up because it is, uh, you know, what Suzanne said is, is it get back to the freedom to read. And I believe in the freedom to write. And I don't think there is a specific endpoint where it's all solved. I think this is an ongoing issue and it should be an ongoing issue. And I think the reason we're in crisis now is because it's really an attempt to shut down a whole, various ways of looking at the world. And I think in schools, there, there are so many students that are so isolated and books can, certain books can offer so much. I mean, you're see, you, when you go to Instagram, you will see how, how profoundly certain books have affected people. And that's really what it's all, all about. The age appropriate stuff is, is true. There are books that, are, that you, you know, eight-year-old children should not be reading. And so, it, you know, I, I think because it is truly a crisis, there is kind of a, a feeling that there's it's an absolute issue and it isn't just as in a democracy we don't get to an endpoint we we are we are going back and forth and out of finding some kind of a consensus that's actually what school boards used to be about the, the school boards i mean there are people that don't serve on school boards because they fear for their lives i mean this is the whole thing has been weaponized to a degree which is why it to me it connects with a truly authoritarian point of view. 
that it is that it isn't about an isolated book. It's about a way of looking, ways of looking at the world that they're saying should not be out there. Well, I, I want to look at the numbers just one more time. Uh, of the books, and, and this comes from the study from Penn, 61% um, of the books that were banned were young adult. 22% were adult. And so we're talking about age appropriateness here. But 17% were middle school and picture books. Now, by definition, if it's a middle school book or- I am Edie Falco. I remember the first time I read To Kill a Mockingbird. I think I was 11 or 12 in middle school. I remember being touched by many things in that book, but there was one line in particular that really struck me. You never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. And this has turned out to be what I do for a living. Um, I don't think I would have read that book had it been banned in my school district, as it was in so many other areas in the United States. And the fact, in fact, the past school year, Pan America has uh, found more than 3,000 cases of banned books just here in the United States. We have to protect the right of children to read, no matter where they live or what school district they go to. You can help by sharing the story of a book that you read that's banned, uh, or you can click on the link in the bio and see how else you might be able to help. Okay, what's, what do you want to talk about? I want to talk about October 7th, which is a day, a national day for supporting Have it the boner test relative to banning books. Um, there's some really great questions in the chat, and I want to get to the uh, first one. Uh, and here's the question If progressive parents have the right to lobby school boards for DEI and teaching the 1619 project, do conservative parents have the right to lobby against DEI and teaching that marriage is a sacred bond between one man and one woman? And I think. This gets to the Moibus strip of, you know, where did this start and, and what constitutes 
the need for, for if not banning, restricting, et cetera. Suzanne, you just wrote a, an amazing piece about this. Sure. Uh, look, parents do have rights. Parents have and should have a say in what, how their kids' education is shaped. You know, we all, all of us who've been parents have had moments where something happened at school that we weren't entirely happy with and we wanted to raise it. That's why we have parent-teacher conferences. That's why we have parent-teacher associations. You know, we have channels. We can talk to the teacher, talk to the principal. That's all normal. And there's going to be a give and take and people are going to have different views. And, and the messaging on sensitive issues is going to vary depending on where in the country you are, it, whether you're in a city or in a rural community, it's going to be different here in New York City than it is uh, in a place like West Virginia or Oklahoma. We have to accept that. Those normal channels, that give and take, sometimes it can get tense, but it doesn't mean you go to the legislature and seek a law banning the teaching of certain concepts. It doesn't mean you go to the school board and insist that a book that may not be right for your child, needs to be denied to everyone. And so it's this escalation of tactics and this resort to out-and-out -out censorship to navigate what can sometimes be genuinely difficult issues. I mean, there are debates about age appropriateness. Some of the books that we deal with that are uh, heavily banned are sexually explicit. You know, they're not right for every age group. The authors acknowledge that. They intended those books with a certain readership in mind. And so we have to be able to kind of come to grips with that. We can't, I don't think, be absolutist. I think we have to let people have their say. Denying them their say only intensifies their drive to lash out and uh, seek to ban and suppress. Uh, I, th I think the question, though, also asks another question, which is when we began and there were school boards that that banned Huckleberry Finn because of slavery and, and the use of the N-word, et cetera, uh, without really acknowledging that it's one of the most powerful anti-slavery books ever written. How do we how do we justify appropriateness and how do we really understand what it means to accept whether it's language, ideas, concepts, histories that are difficult um, and begin you know, I, I, I mean, a couple of thoughts. I, mean, I think we have to double down behind the freedom to read, recognizing that all kinds of books are going to offend different people for different reasons, and they're going to find them objectionable. It can be people on the right and the left. We've, in, in, alongside our work on book bans, we put out a report last month called Book Lash that's about the freedom to read and the language of harm and how online mobs are uh, prompting publishing houses and authors to withhold certain books because they come under fire. Oftentimes for people who haven't even read the book, but just object to the content uh, or object to the identity of the author and the subject that they're writing about. So there's been a kind of turning away from the freedom to read uh, on both sides of the spectrum. And we need to rally around that agenda and restore it. You know, and, you know. with that said, I, I think there are going to be ongoing debates about appropriateness, about how to deal with certain ideas, about where the Overton window lies, what should be considered out of bounds. I don't think we'll ever have a hard and fast set of rules, but we have to rely on civic discourse, on dialogue, on problem solving within communities to get past that. We can't resort to out-and-out -out warfare, which is what is happening in many of these communities now. And, and Rick, you talked uh, at the very beginning, too, about the writer's uh, expression and the idea that you have to be free to express your truth, your understanding of the world, your experiences. And it... it what I noticed in, in Edie's, which always moves me very much when I hear this, her, her identification with reading and becoming empathetic, understanding what it is to be another person, to think like another person. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and the importance 
I mean, this is this is what I truly believe about writing is that it is ultimately an act of empathy. It's an act of putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. And it's a way of attempting to understand the world. And um, I really object that, uh, you know, there is there is uh, a lot of pressure in terms of what you're allowed to write about. And I believe, you know, anyone should be able to write about anything as as long as they do the work, as long as they're they're writing honestly about another person's experience. But I think this is a really great question and a, and a, and a great thing to, to take up because it is, uh, you know, what Suzanne said is is it get back to the freedom to read. And I believe in the freedom to write. And I don't think there is a specific endpoint where it's all solved. I think this is an ongoing issue and it should be an ongoing issue. And I think the reason we're in crisis now is because it's really an attempt to shut down a whole, various ways of looking at the world. And I think in schools, there, there are so many students that are so isolated and books can, certain books can offer so much. I mean, you're seeing, you, when you go to Instagram, you will see how, how profoundly certain books have affected people. And that's really what it's all, all about. The age-appropriate stuff is, is true. There are books that, are, that you, you know, eight-year-old children should not be reading. And so, it, you know, I, I think because it is truly a crisis, there is kind of a, a feeling that there's it's an absolute issue, and it isn't. Just as in a democracy, we don't get to an end point. We, we, are, we are going back and forth and out of finding some kind of a consensus. That's actually what school boards used to be about. The, the school boards, I mean, there are people that don't serve on school boards because they fear for their lives. I mean, this is the whole thing has been weaponized to a degree, which is why, it can, to me, it connects with a truly authoritarian point of view. That it is that it isn't about an isolated book. It's about a way of looking, ways of looking at the world that they're saying should not be out there. Well, I I want to look at the numbers just one more time uh, of the books, and and this comes from the study from Penn. Sixty one percent of the books that were banned were young adult. Twenty two percent were adult, and so we're talking about age appropriateness here. But 17% were middle school and picture books. Now, by definition, if it's a middle school book or a picture book, somebody has deemed it to be age appropriate. Uh, I, I went through and, and read uh, one of the most recently most banned books called Peanut Goes for the Gold. And it is about a hamster who's wearing a T-shirt a la Winnie the Pooh, uh, and the hamster is going for the gold in a gymnastics competition. The fact that throughout the book, the peanut, the hamster, is referred to as they has caused the book to be banned. Yes. So yeah. it, 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 I talk a little bit about age appropriateness. In other words, the concept, the idea of the book is you make the best out of a bad situation. Uh, in, in the case of Peanut Goes for the Gold. But they focus on things that are completely unrelated to the story of the book, the characters, or even what kids would pick up on. Yeah, I, I came across one called Seahorse, the Shyest Fish in the Sea. By Christine Butterworth. It's for kindergarten through grade two, and it can be read in class except for pages 12 and 13. And spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you what happens on pages 12 and 13. Here's the quote We're talking about seahorses. They twist their tails together and twirl gently around, changing color until they match. The two of them dance until sunset. And then she puts her eggs in his pouch. Now, someone somewhere got just a little too excited by this passage and decided that it would be damaging for children to experience the seahorses dancing. 
so it, it it does of course across all ages this you know this this is uh, you know this is a book for very very small children and again it reveals much more what's in the head of these book banners than than anything else we have a number of questions in the chat from people who have taught history who have taught science um, and I, the idea of banning scientific truths, the idea of banning historical facts and truths, uh, I think is one of the most disturbing parts of all of this. Uh, where does the role of expertise come into this? Are we no longer accepting that trained teachers can teach, that trained doctors can prescribe? What, what is happening here? Well, unfortunately, we're seeing polarization uh, creep into every sector of society. I mean, we saw this with the pandemic. It, you know, it was ostensibly about science and medicine, and yet it became profoundly politicized. We see this in the debates now over the college board and the advanced placement curriculum, where they banned uh, AP Amer African-American history in Florida because they wanted certain changes made in that curriculum. And they felt some of the ideas uh, were too radical, and they didn't want a discussion of uh, LGBTQ issues as part of that course or Black power as part of that course. And, you know, at first the college board, I think was, you know, felt they should negotiate this, that, uh, you know, they didn't want this course to fall away. They felt uh, students in Florida needed access to that class and they were willing to compromise. And then they realized that, you know, that compromise was a, a road to perdition. And that, you know, the minute you start negotiating uh, with politicians over curriculum, there's no limiting principle and they finally stood up and you know then they really took a stand when people attacked ap psychology uh again because of how it dealt with issues of sexuality and gender identity uh the the, the college board rightly put their foot down but i think we are seeing a war on expertise of course expertise is contested it's not that all the experts agree on you know look i mean evangeline uh, you know, uh, have lived life with a historian that, uh, you know, it's it's an arena for rich and pitched debate. And that is as it should be, uh, you know, but when you're trying to present it to students at the elementary or middle or high school age, you know, you, as they get more mature, you can present more of that contestation and show uh, showcase different theories and allow children to make up their own minds as they gain the intellectual maturity to do that. And so that's how our schools have always worked. But in a, an environment that is this polarized, that system really is breaking down. In, in fact, in, uh, my husband was Alan Brinkley and his textbook, uh, the AP textbook, there are sections at the end of each chapter called Where Historians Disagree. Sort of acknowledging that there are going to be issues of interpretation. But there are never issues of fact, you know, slavery did exist. So uh, we have a question that leads from this, and that is, what are the roles of universities in all of this? And I suppose that raises the larger question, where is leadership coming from? Uh, because right now, it seems to me to be Pan America, the writers, and who else? Publishers have not weighed in. University presidents have not weighed in. And legislators are, by and large, silent. So where does leadership come from in terms of creating a sense that we can have access to ideas? Yeah, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll answer quickly. I want to make sure Richard has a chance as well. Look, we have seen uh, some publishers coming to the foreground. Penguin Random House is a co-plaintiff uh, with us in Escambia County, and they have invested pretty heavily in the fight against book bans. Other companies, uh, publishing houses like Scholastic and Simon & Schuster, Hachette uh, as well, you know, they're businesses. And so this is 
challenging for them in some ways. Uh, you know, they don't want to lose access to big markets like Florida and Texas. We're seeing the textbook manufacturers come, come under enormous pressure uh, from those states. When it comes to college presidents, it's complicated. We have a group uh, called the Champions of Higher Education, which are former presidents of universities who come together to fight against what we call educational gag orders, which are bans and prohibitions on what can be taught in the college classroom. And the reason it's formers is because for in these states, you know, the university presidents are really in a tough position. I mean, Ron DeSantis, you know, fired the president of New College and initiated a hostile takeover of that institution. And I think the other college presidents in a state like that, uh, you know, really feel like their fate is hanging in the balance and there could be a dilemma, you know, if you were to step, resist and then be forced out uh, or step down, you know, who would you be replaced by? And, you know, what agenda would they be charged with implementing? So, the, you know, it is, it's a chilling environment. It's an environment that is intended to intimidate. But I do think we need from all sectors of society, we've seen the Biden administration step up. Someone asked in the chat, you know, what can government do? You know, uh, you know, really, the answer is not legislation for the most part. They've appointed now a book ban czar who's looking at how civil rights laws can be uh, leveraged in order to combat discriminatory book bans that target people wait based minute, on wait a identity. I, I didn't know that. Am I the only one on this call that didn't know there was a book ban czar? I didn't know that. Yeah, there is. He he just started about two weeks ago. I met with him last week. Uh, he's in the the Office of Civil Rights in the Department of Education, and they look at where there are cases where book bans are creating a hostile environment on the basis of a protected characteristic. So on the basis of race or uh, gender, you know, those are situations where they uh, may be able to step in and investigate. There was one investigation in Forsyth County uh, that led to some important sanctions. So that's the work that he is going to be focused on. Wow. Rick? Yeah, I, I have um, actually a somewhat optimistic take on this, which is, I think, um, I think we, this is the beginning of a movement rather than, I don't think we can really judge that people are, yes, people are stepping up. It isn't as big a movement as it's going, going to be. But I think a lot of us took for granted that we're living in a country where uh, we would not be facing really concerted, organized, vicious opposition about denying the freedom to read. I mean, I think in a way, in this and in so many other ways, we're living in the future and we're not prepared. And right now, we have to catch up and we have to catch up fast. And I'm extremely heartened by uh, the libraries, uh, Brooklyn Public Library leading the way in terms of providing free books to any any student in the country and other other libraries have have followed suit and of course uh eventually you mentioned this earlier there, there you know there's a bomb threat in a, in a library in in brooklyn this is this is a this is a real fight but i think we're getting i think we're getting started i think for some of us we're we're, we're just waking up to it and i know for uh for the initiative to i feel like we have to catch up to what uh pan america is, is doing and i think uh the purpose of what we're doing uh, this Saturday, the day, the day of action, is to really build awareness. Because yes, the the, the percentage-wise, the, the bulk of Americans are opposed to book bans. But I think unless you have skin in the game, unless you have kids in school and everything, it's one of those issues that can stay on the back burner. My feeling is it is the definitive front burner issue because it affects all of us and it can lead to a truly hellish place. Rick, when... I know in the first meeting when you proposed this Writers Guild Initiative project about banned books, one of the things that you said that was so powerful was, let's take the fight to them. And I think that speaks to what you're talking about, not to be passive, not to think it's happening, oh, in, in that stake over there. Right. But to take it to the people who can make a difference. and. Do you think that the right, the success of the Writers Guild strike indicates that when there can be a movement like this that is clear in its intention, 
clarifies the lines of argument that it can be successful. Absolutely. I totally believe that. And, and, and out on the picket line, it was the unity, the strength, the, the enthusiasm. I, I mean, that's how the strike was resolved the way it was. Because, in fact, you know, we were thinking of the studios as this sort of monolithic force, but they're all, they all hate each other. They're all in competition, and there were some who wanted to settle and some didn't. Writers, we were completely unified. And it was an inspiring, inspiring movement. And I think there's a reason why unions are coming back in this country. And why, I mean, there was, you know, for so long, it felt like unions were incidental to uh, American life. And it's not that way now. I have, I have great hope for what we're doing. I, I really do. Well, I, I want to end on that really positive and exciting note. And I want to thank both of you so much and everyone on this call. And I hope you can uh, consider joining the effort on social media and financially. Uh, and uh, please keep in touch with the work that the Big Tent is doing, because I always find that these discussions keep us absolutely at the heart of what the, the issues are. Again, Suzanne, Rick, thank you so much. I hope each of you go immediately on in Instagram and like them, pat, you know, share them, and uh, feel inspired to make your own video. <laughs>